You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Reading from Matthew 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out from the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, one of the preparation, one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were afraid of him, so they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Excellent. That was a whirlwind change. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this, your word, and we ask that this day, by the power of your spirit, you would be opening our hearts and minds for the first time, or or maybe uh, afresh, Uh, to the wonderful difference that Jesus' resurrection makes in our lives. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, So this Easter here at DPC, you may have seen some of the kind of marketing. I'm not sure if you have, but we're exploring this question. What difference does Easter make? Uh, And in particular today, being Resurrection Sunday, as as Beck started our service saying, uh, we're exploring the, the question, what difference does Jesus' resurrection make? If it makes any difference at all. And so I want you to see from this passage that Jesus' resurrection makes a difference for three main reasons. It makes a difference because it's established in history, it offers deep joy, 
and it can be received as a gift by anyone. Why three main reasons? Jesus' resurrection makes a difference because it's established in history, uh, it offers deep joy, and and it is received as a gift. So first, let's look at how Jesus' resurrection makes a difference because it's established in history. I've got five kind of arguments for that from this passage in particular. So first, if you look at the very start of the passage, chapter 27, verses 57 to 61, I think they make it very clear that Jesus' body was actually dead and buried. Well, that's pretty important because some people want to say, well, you know, Jesus, he didn't actually, he wasn't actually resurrected. He was just resuscitated. You know, that they took him down from the cross. They thought he was dead, but he'd actually just passed out. And then later on, he came to and appeared to all these people who thought he was raised from the dead. But there's lots of evidence here, isn't there, in Matthew's account that really blows that theory out of the water. So first... Uh, if you take a look uh, back at verse 54, if you've got, actually got Matthew 27 open in your whole Bible, not just the passage on the welcome card, uh, if you look back at verse 54, you'll see that it was a group of Roman centurions who crucified Jesus. Now, that's important, right? Because Roman centurions were experts at killing people. Like, that was kind of their job. These guys were trained executioners. It seems very unlikely that they would have allowed Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross if he wasn't actually dead. That makes sense to me. Hopefully it does to you. Second, uh, in verses 57 to 60, Matthew says that Jesus' body was taken down, was buried by a particular man named Joseph of Arimathea. And in Matthew's day, putting Joseph's name there in the text of the gospel was a little bit like inserting a footnote It's Matthew's way of saying, if you want to know if Jesus really was dead and buried in Joseph's tomb, all you've got to go and talk. All you've got to do is go and talk to this guy Joseph. Right? He's still alive. He's an eyewitness to all this stuff. Just go and talk to him. He'll confirm it. A third. I know Joseph's not some kind of medical pathologist or something. He's not a coroner. He's not an expert. But I reckon in the process of getting Jesus' body off the tomb and carrying it to his tomb and wrapping it in a linen cloth and other gospel accounts have them anointing Jesus' body with oil for burial, surely in the process of all of that, he would have twigged if Jesus wasn't really dead. Not to mention the women. You see the women mentioned in in verse 61. Matthew talks about uh, two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which doesn't seem overly complimentary, right? But but I think the reason he says the other Mary, because if you look back at verse 56, uh, he's already said that the other Mary is Mary, the mother of James and John. But you reckon these women who were observing what Joseph is doing, surely they would have kind of said to Joseph, hey, don't, don't you see? He's just unconscious. He's still breathing. Don't put him in the tomb. You know, but they didn't say that. It's pretty clear, I think, that Jesus' body was dead and buried. Now, some people might say, well, well, maybe he was dead and buried, but, but surely there's got to be another explanation for why all these people think that Jesus was raised from the dead, why his tomb was empty. And you might say, well, it's got to be because his disciples stole his body. But that's Matthew tackles that, doesn't he, in verses uh, 62 to 66. He's trying to make it clear that Jesus' body can't have been stolen. Take a look in verse 62. Matthew says that the next day, that the one after preparation day, or that's the Jewish Sabbath day, what we observed yesterday, kind of Easter Saturday, 
On this Sabbath day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. This is interesting, right? This is the hypocrisy of these Jewish leaders, the same Jewish leaders who, if you read back in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, these leaders started plotting to kill Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath. He brought life to someone on the Sabbath. Here they are breaking the Sabbath themselves. For what purpose? For the purpose of making sure Jesus stays dead and buried. So they break the Sabbath. In verse 63, they remind Pilate that while Jesus was still alive, he actually predicted that on the third day he would come back to life. Now, let's be clear. It's not like the Jewish leaders actually believe that Jesus is going to come back to life. But I think this does mean that the events around Jesus' death have actually unsettled the Jewish leaders a bit. You can read back in the passage later on, the passage Adam preached on, on Good Friday. You remember there, when Jesus died, strange things happened. Either there was three hours of darkness in the middle of the day, right? Weird. There was an earthquake. The curtain in the temple where these Jewish leaders worked was torn in two from top to bottom. These Jewish leaders are going, look... We don't really believe Jesus is the Son of God, but there's some mighty weird stuff going on around this guy. So we want to make sure his tomb is kept absolutely secure. So they say to Pilate, let's let's sort this out. They want to make sure that Jesus' disciples don't steal Jesus' body and deceive everyone by saying that he's been raised from the dead. Now, of course, if if you read... Matthew's account, it's very clear that Jesus' disciples aren't anywhere near Jesus' tomb. They've deserted him long ago. They're hiding away. They're grieving Jesus' death. So Pilate, he's a bit irritated with these Jewish leaders. It's a long day with them the day before, with them sort of haranguing him to crucify Jesus. A long day. So he probably says to them, not take a guard, but you have a guard. What he's saying to them, if you guys are so desperate to make Jesus' tomb secure, go and secure it yourself. Right? Use some of your own guards. You remember back when these Jewish leaders arrested Jesus, they sent some of their kind of what were known as the temple police, the temple guards, to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night. Pilate's saying, use some of your own guards. So that's what these Jewish leaders do, which is why in chapter 28, verses 11 to 15, I kind of never realised this, but when the guards at the tomb realise that Jesus' body is missing, who do they go and speak to? It's not Pilate, is it? They go and speak to these Jewish leaders because they're guards from the temple in Jerusalem. Putting all this together, I think it's very unlikely that Jesus' body was stolen. It's not a perfect case, right? But, but it's pretty clear that Jesus' disciples have deserted him, that they're nowhere near his tomb, and that his tomb is being guarded by the very people who are desperate to keep him in it, to make sure he stays dead and buried. Third, third reason why Jesus' resurrection is established in history, uh, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection are women. Take a look at in chapter 28, verse 1. You see there that early on the Sunday morning, uh, the two Marys go off to Jesus' tomb to take a look at it. Are these women? Uh, and then you're looking down in verse 9, sorry, and you see that Jesus himself appears to these women. Right? These women are the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. 
which to us doesn't seem like a very big deal, right? But, but in Jesus' day, uh, in Jewish and Roman courts, the testimony of a woman wasn't considered to be admissible evidence in the court. You, you couldn't build a case on it. So the only reason Matthew would have included these two Marys as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection is because it was actually true. Why It actually happened in history. Otherwise, if Matthew was sitting down after the, after the fact to just kind of concoct a story about Jesus being raised from the dead, he would have come up with a much more respectable and reliable witness in his culture. So the fact that these women are the first witnesses, that gives a whole lot of historical reliability to what's going on here. You might say, well, maybe these women did think that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. Maybe Jesus' disciples thought they saw him raised from the dead. But that was just because they, they really expected Jesus to be raised. And that kind of deep expectation manifested in some kind of collective psychosis. Collective hallucination that they saw Jesus together. But that's not what we see here, is it? But chapter 28, verse 6, I think shows us that Jesus' disciples didn't expect him to be raised. Take a look here in chapter 28, verse 6. The angel says to the women, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. Just as he said. Three times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has explicitly predict, predicted that on the third day he would be raised. In Matthew 16, verse 21, for example, Jesus explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. He predicted the same thing in chapter 17, verse 22, and, and chapter 20, verse 18. Well, this is what the angel's referring to, at least part of what the angel's referring to, uh, when it says, just as Jesus said. Right, Jesus has been talking about this all the time, he's saying. But even after all these predictions, what do Jesus' disciples think? They think that when Jesus dies, he's going to stay dead. That's what they think. They're huddled away grieving. Some people today think, well, of course, in Jesus' day, they believed in the resurrection. You know, without modern science, they were ignorant and gullible and superstitious. They, they had the wool pulled over their eyes all the time. I'm much more enlightened than that in the 21st century. But that's what people think today. But the reality is Jesus' disciples are more like us than we realise. When Jesus died, they didn't expect him to be raised. They thought that he would stay dead. That was their expectation. Because as Jewish men, right, many of them did believe that at the very end of the world, God would raise everyone physically to be judged by him, but none of them had a concept of a single human being right in the middle of history being raised from the dead. That, that, that just wasn't a part of their worldview at all. So for, even though it's for very different reasons, the reality is Jesus' disciples are just as close to the idea of the resurrection as you might be. Fifth, uh, the next part of verse 6 makes it clear that Jesus' tomb was empty. Take a look, the angel asked the women to, to come into the tomb and see the place where Jesus lay. Right, but, but Jesus isn't there, the tomb's empty. 
You say, well, yeah, so what? But you'll notice in verses 11 to 15 that the guards who were responsible for guarding the tomb, what they don't do is go, oh, here's Jesus' body. We'll just pop it back in the tomb. They don't do that, do they? Because no one can find Jesus' body. In fact, no one has been able to produce Jesus' body since. Frankly, if someone right this moment could walk in with Jesus' body, I'd stop being a Christian. The resurrection is the hinge of Christianity, but no one's ever been able to find Jesus' body. It's an historical fact that Jesus' tomb was empty. You've got to come up with an explanation for that. My explanation is that he was raised from the dead. You think he didn't die on the cross? I'm not persuaded. The Romans were good at killing people. You think his disciples stole his body? I'm not persuaded. The very people who wanted him to stay in that tomb were guarding the tomb. Jesus' resurrection makes a difference because it is actually established in history. Sometimes when people hear that I'm a Christian, they say, well, isn't that... No, they're not patronising the way they say that, but they say it. They say it's nice that you've found something that's true for you because it makes a difference for you. It gives you a sense of purpose and meaning and joy and hope in life. I understand what they're saying, right? But that's not what Christianity says. Christianity doesn't say that Christianity is true for you because it makes a difference. Christianity says it makes a difference because it's true. It only makes a difference because it's true. Because it's actually based in historical realities. Like Jesus' resurrection is established in history. That's why it makes a difference. Second, Jesus' resurrection makes a difference because it offers deep joy. But take a look in chapter 28, verse 8. You see there, even at the prospect of Jesus being raised from the dead, they haven't yet seen Jesus in verse 8. They've seen the angel. uh, But these women are filled with joy. Uh, Imagine their joy in verses 9 and 10 when they actually see Jesus. What's the source of their joy? I think it's the the incredible turn of events that they've experienced. These women thought that Jesus was the Messiah, God's king. That was their expectation. And yet at the cross, who's the Messiah? The Messiah is God's chosen and anointed king, the one who'd been sent by God to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and to bring about a glorious new world that all of us long for, a world free of sickness and suffering and pain. That was their expectation for Jesus. They had these incredible hopes for Jesus. And yet at the cross, all those hopes were completely shattered. And so they were grieving and in despair. And now they see Jesus raised from the dead and their hope is alive because Jesus is alive. It's this incredible turn of events that turns things around for these women. A turn of events that really seems too good to be true, doesn't it? It just seems like a fairy tale, the idea of this Jesus coming back from the dead. Uh, J.R. Tolkien, I'm a big fan of J.R. Tolkien, a big fan of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and so on. Uh, He once wrote an essay about fairy tales. You can Google it if you like, J.R. Tolkien on fairy stories. Uh, In it he said this, "Uh, The joy of the happy ending in fairy tales, the, the sudden joyous turn, gives a fleeting glimpse of joy beyond the walls of this world. 
It's the mark of a good fairy tale uh, that it can give to the person that hears it when that turn comes, a catch of the breath and a lifting of the heart. You see what he's saying? He's saying great fairy tales always have this dramatic turn at the end, a twist where everything's flipped upside down. That wonderful moment when you find yourself thinking to yourself, it would be wonderful if this was true, but it can't be true. That's what we think, isn't it? It'd be wonderful if the world of fairy tales was actually true. If you could actually have relationships with otherworldly beings like in fairy tales. If loving relationships did go on forever. If good really did triumph over evil. If there really was a glorious world that was unblemished and untouched and beautiful. Well, it wouldn't be wonderful if the world of fairy tales was actually true. Well, what Tolkien argues in his essay is that Jesus' resurrection tells us that the world of fairy tales is, in a sense, true. It gives us a glimpse of reality. Because Jesus' resurrection tells you that, in a sense, you can have a relationship with an otherworldly being. The God who made you, who made everyone, who made everything. Jesus' resurrection assures you that the good has triumphed over evil. That loving relationships with God and others will go on forever. That that their sickness and suffering and death have been defeated at the cross and will fully and finally be defeated when Jesus returns, when he brings in a new and glorious world that is unblemished and untouched and beautiful and glorious in every way. That's, that's what these women, maybe they're not, yeah, they obviously weren't reading Tolkien's essay, right? But that's a sense of what they're starting to contemplate in verse 8. The joy they're experiencing. Because all their hopes they pinned on Jesus are actually coming true. Right? The resurrection makes a difference because it gives you the, the knowledge that one day the deepest longings of your heart will come true. The longing, so, you know, every time you're at, at a funeral and you have to say bye to someone that you love, you think, wouldn't it be wonderful if loving relationships went on forever? The resurrection says they do, if you trust in Christ. You watch the news and you see evil triumphing over good. Wouldn't it be wonderful if good triumphed over evil in the end? The, re- the resurrection says it does, you see. The resurrection makes a difference because it gives you the deep joy that comes from knowing the deepest longings of your heart will one day be fulfilled. And you might say, well, that's all fine and good, uh, but in the end, it's only for those who are good enough. That's not me, right? Uh, But Jesus' resurrection makes a difference because anyone can receive it as a gift. Take a look in chapter 28, verse 10. Jesus says to the women... Chapter 28, verse 10, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers, that's Jesus' apostles, to go to Galilee, there they will see me. I know it's hard to get it just from this one verse, right? But but this is actually Jesus' amazing grace. What are you saying? I'm going to go and meet my disciples in Galilee. And if you've read the previous passages, you'll know that Jesus' disciples are a bit of a mess, Jesus' disciples have denied him and deserted him and disowned him. You see, the resurrection makes a difference, not for those who are good enough, but for those who know that they're not good enough. 
But for those who are willing to humbly admit that they are weak and broken and sinful, but that upon the cross, Jesus died for their sins and paid the full penalty for their sins so that through faith in him, they can be accepted by God. But the resurrection makes for difference. But for people who, like Jesus' disciples, are willing to humbly receive the hope and joy and peace that's held out to them as a wonderful gift that they don't deserve. So how will you respond to Jesus' resurrection? There's maybe multiple options. I'm going to present two from this passage. The first is that you could keep denying Jesus. I like the Jewish leaders do in chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. These leaders are confronted at least with the possible reality of Jesus' resurrection. What do they do? They don't bow their knee and worship Jesus. They resort to, to bribery and corruption and deception all in a desperate effort to preserve their own power and control. And maybe there's a little bit of that in us, in in you. Not that I'm accusing people here of bribery and corruption and so on. Uh, But the reality is we do all have a vested interest in denying that Jesus was raised from the dead. In our sinfulness, right? That the the reality that that Jesus, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, what does that mean? It, It means in the end... All of us are accountable to him. You're accountable to him. It means that instead of clinging to control of your life, like the Jewish leaders do here, you should be surrendering control of your life to Jesus. So we're all very inclined to to come up with all sorts of reasons why Jesus can't be raised from the dead, to deny Jesus' resurrection, because none of us like letting go of control. But that's what I want to encourage you to do today, to surrender control to Jesus by following Jesus, uh, like Joseph does uh, at the start of the passage. Chapter 27, verses 57 to 61. We're coming back to Joseph. If you scan back to that passage, you see Joseph knew from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, that the bodies of those who'd been crucified couldn't be left up overnight. Right? They had to be taken down and buried. Uh, of course, Joseph also knows that Jesus' apostles are from Galilee. It's not like they've got a tomb in and around Jerusalem. And all of them have deserted Jesus by now anyway. Uh, so Joseph goes and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Uh, in verse 57, uh, we see there that Joseph is a rich man who'd actually become a disciple of Jesus. Uh, The fact that he's rich uh, reminds us of a passage in the Old Testament. You can look it up later on, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. It says that Jesus is going to be, when he dies, he'll be assigned a grave with the rich. That's because of Joseph and his ministry here. Uh, Mark and Luke add that Joseph is actually one of the Sanhedrin, one of those Jewish leaders who condemned Jesus to death, or at least the Sanhedrin did, not Joseph. Right? Luke 23 verse 51 says that as a disciple of Jesus, Joseph didn't agree with that decision. He didn't support it. So Joseph is not just a follower of Jesus. He knows what it is to, to bear a cost for the sake of following Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage too, isn't it? Joseph courageously approaches Pilate to ask for the body of someone that Pilate has just given the approval to execute do you really want to align yourself with the one who's just been crucified? Incredibly bold. But Joseph knows that the bodies of those who are crucified are typically just chucked in a trench somewhere. But his Jesus deserves better than that. 
And so Joseph gives Jesus his own tomb. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? The tomb Joseph has bought just outside Jerusalem. Being so close to the city, it would have been very expensive. And because Joseph is burying Jesus in it, right, a convicted criminal, the law said he would never be allowed to use his tomb again. This whole exercise is incredibly costly for Joseph. Just think about it. Joseph is losing his position in the local synagogue. Joseph is losing his reputation amongst his friends. Joseph is losing all the wealth that he's invested into this tomb and he's losing any prospect at all of having an honourable burial for himself. Maybe one day he'll be chucked in a trench. It was very costly for Joseph, but Joseph counted that cost and did the calculations and thought, it's still worth following Jesus. Why is that? Well, because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said, Matthew 19, verse 29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not doing a bait and switch here or sugarcoating anything. The reality is there's a real cost if you choose to follow Jesus. There is a cost. But you must never think that you'll miss out. The resurrected Jesus says here that whatever cost you experience, in spiritual blessings you'll receive 100 times as much if you choose to follow him. I mean, imagine if I said, look, you can have this $100 note, but there's going to be a real cost for it, right? A real, real cost. You have to give me $1. Right, you can have the $100, but there's going to be a real cost. You have to give me $1 back. Like, I'm not, I'm not an accountant. I'm not great with maths. But I'm, th- that's a pretty good deal. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a real cost for following him. But the blessings will far outweigh it, as we heard Mel and Dylan testify to earlier. Right, Jesus' resurrection makes a difference. Three reasons. Because it's established in history. It offers deep joy. Excuse me. It offers deep joy uh, and it's received as a gift by anyone. So I want to encourage you to do that today, to count the cost and to follow Jesus. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this short word. Uh, We thank you for the wonder uh, that Christ is indeed risen. And we pray that even in this moment you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to see the glory of Christ's resurrection and to see the difference that it makes in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.